What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Hi, everybody. I'm Kelly Evans. Here's what's ahead. A pretty nice rally in stocks with the Dow up 600 points right now after the market got crushed last week. Even as recession calls grow louder and former Treasury Secretary Larry Summers says the unemployment rate might need to go up for five years to beat inflation. Is he right? And if so, what does it mean for the markets? Plus, home sales down for the fourth straight month. Now one of the nation's largest home builders also seeing a slowdown. But the CEO says forecasting what happens next would amount to guessing. So have we reached a housing turning point or not? And fallout from the surging dollar. We're going to look at the stocks, the stats, and the strategy on three names most exposed to the currency and the cloud. But first, come with me. Let's check on these markets. As I mentioned, the Dow up more than 600 points right now. 30,492 for a 2% gain. The S&P is up 2.5%. And the NASDAQ back above 11,000 with a 3% rally to pretty much lead the way. The NASDAQ is the big winner, reversing some of its downward selling pressure we've seen. We've also been helped by the mega caps today with Alphabet up 4.5%, Apple, Amazon, Microsoft up between 25 and 3.5%. And the semis are also making a comeback here. Check out the SMH ETF up more than 3%, around 2.12 a share. Uh, NVIDIA, Applied Materials. Lamb Research for in NVIDIA's case, more than a 6% gain today. And now energy. Importantly, it's coming back after a big down week. Uh, here's the price of crude in the middle, 111 a barrel. Now it's pushing the space higher. The energy spider is up 5.5% today. Exxon leading the pack with a 7% gain after getting an upgrade to outperform at Credit Suisse. And don't want to end without mentioning Tesla, an 11% jump puts the stock back above $700, up to $725 after falling back below that level last week. Still, we're down about 31% this year. So despite today's stock rally, the averages are still down about 7% or more in June as inflation has surged to 40-year highs. In a speech yesterday, former Treasury Secretary Larry Summers laid out three potential scenarios to bring inflation down. Okay, here's your choices. Two years of 7.5% unemployment, five years of 6% unemployment, or one year at 10%. So which one would my next guest prefer? Jeff Krempelman is chief investment strategist at Mariner Wealth Advisors. Jeff, welcome. And uh, which, which door would you like to open, sir? Well, quite frankly, all three doors sound quite horrible. <laughs> I don't think I would subscribe to any three of those doors. And I'll do respect to Larry Summers. You know, what a brilliant guy. Uh, very articulate. But there are plenty of folks, and this kind of gets into the, the bear and bull camp on the economy right now. Um, you know, Edgar Denny is an example of, of someone who says, you know, that we can have a soft landing. The Fed can still engineer that. And uh, we think that's possible. But if they cannot do that, I, we're talking about a mild recession. And the three cases that are outlined right there, 10 percent, you've hardly seen that in the history of the world. Um, you're talking about depression uh, era levels. And then the other two are quite high. I'd like to take a look at over time and just see how extended you get those levels of uh, unemployment. We think that the data 
is not that negative. It just isn't improving as fast as people want. And so the market's already discounted, I think, a, a mild recession. If you X out those extreme situations that Larry seems to want to describe, the S&P 500 in a mild recession tends to be down around 25% on average. We're almost there. I don't think it's a time to be negative. I think it's time to say, when is it the time to buy? Not quite yet, but pretty close. Well, and coincidentally, you know, it wasn't just Larry Summers. Goldman over the weekend doubled its recession odds. They said basically the Fed has now front-loaded more of the rate hikes, leaving less uh, possibility of that soft landing that you talked about. But I wonder if underlying what, what Summers is trying to say, and even what Goldman's indicating, is that you could get a softer period for the next little while, but it's going to be more drawn out. You know, is there something to this idea of much tighter policy? Okay, you get a much worse recession, but hopefully it's a shorter one followed by a stronger recovery. Well, I, I think that it will take some time to churn. I think that uh, we're in a period, I don't think it will take excessively long for the market to uh, recover. I think by the end of next year, we could see the S&P 500 to 5,000 that is significantly above where it is now. And I'm talking about, you know, mid to late in the year. But I think we need to see right now what's happening is inflation news is not as bad as the headlines suggest. There are signs that uh, it is calming a bit, just not as fast as everybody wants. And I think the Fed, um, look, we're not even at neutral right now. Right. And uh, folks are acting like we're going to restrictive. It's very possible that you know, when we've gotten some of this data that the economy and retail sales and housing, it's already starting to calm, that will improve the inflation data. And I'm building, renovating a house in Cincinnati, Ohio, and my contractor, you know, as we were going through the budget, and we don't like to go over budget, as you know, as consumers, <laughs> uh, you know, he said lumber prices in the last two weeks, you know, they've declined almost, you know, by 50%. <laughs> so, Jeff, calm down. You know, maybe the labor hours are a little bit longer as you make some changes to what you want to do. But uh, some of the, the uh, materials costs are, are coming in. So let's just see what happens here. Don't predict the predictors. Let's listen to the market. Let's listen to the economy and tell us where the trend is. All right. So, you, you know, I'm still not hearing you say it's a screaming buy right now, but that you can certainly feel comfortable owning stocks. And you guys always have sort of an eclectic uh, basket. What's in that basket right now? Where are you comfortable uh, being? Yeah, and we, we do think it's premature to say, you know, buy the dip. And I think we're looking for uh, the, the technicals. They, they could get a little bit worse before they get better. And we're looking for some momentum buying and we're looking for rates to show signs of calming. Our blend is a mix of growth and value. And I think like everything else, folks, you know, the average stock is down 31%. There are beautiful growth stocks out there as well as attractive value stocks um, that are down 40 and 50% with very high quality uh, kind of characteristics, nice balance sheets, great growth. And we've got some of them that we listed today. Well, I would put active bookings, uh, service now, um, all in those categories, uh, as example on the growth side, on the value side of United rental, uh, falls in that 
category. Very attractive valuations. Sure. And just to follow up with that, you didn't mention them, which I find telling, but Tesla and NVIDIA are on your list. And they're a little they bit, they're a little bit more, you know, these are, these are hot, hot stocks. They were hot stocks um, for, for some investors. And I get the question a lot these days, actually, who are wondering if these resets offer a good entry point. If you're serious about balance sheet fundamentals and you're in it for, you know, the, the medium to long term, can you feel comfortable owning Tesla and NVIDIA? Uh, yeah, absolutely. The stock was at 1200 not too long ago. Now it's in the 700s. It's the most profitable auto company in the world. 80% market share of electronic vehicles with all kinds of other uh, avenues other than just the car. We're talking about advanced driving mechanisms, uh, charging stations, solar. You know, absolutely. It, are, do you, I guess you have to say, do you believe that EVs are going away? And if you don't, then what an opportunity uh, to buy Tesla. It, it, it was kind of, you know, uh, hold your nose at, at 1200 That was a little tough. But now valuations have come in, and it's a profitable company. NVIDIA, my goodness, you know, uh, if, if we believe in artificial intelligence and the uses of their best-in-class chips, uh, data centers aren't going away. Cloud's not going away. AI is not going away. There are additional uses. Absolutely, those are uh, down, you know, 40, 50% from the highs. You betcha. It's, right. it's, it's, you want to own those. Jeff Krempelman, bring in the heat today. It's great to have you and to get your point of view. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Now, we've talked about lumber. Let's talk about what's going on with housing, where home sales dropped in May for the fourth straight month. And now one of the nation's largest home builders says buyers are pausing and reconsidering. Diana Olick is here with all the details. Diana? Well, Kelly, home sales dropped in May, yes, but those closings are based on those numbers are based on closing. So contracts signed in March and April when rates were rising, but not nearly as high as they are today. So the realtors are predicting further declines. Low supply continued to keep pressure on prices. The realtors reported the median home price was over four hundred seven thousand dollars, the highest on record and the first time we've seen a four handle in that supply is improving, but still very low, especially in the more affordable ranges. The realtors chief economist said he expects sales to decline as interest rates rise faster than even he expected. The average on the 30-year fix started the year just over 3%. Now it's just over 6%. And that's why the chairman of one of the nation's largest home builders, Lennar, said despite a strong second quarter, rates are now causing buyers to pause and reconsider. It's natural that there'd be a little sticker shock, a little bit of a pause, and there'll be some reconciliation. At the end of the day, uh, we have a housing shortage across the country. We're going to continue to build homes and we'll adjust price as needs be. And that's the biggest question in the market today. How much will prices need to adjust and what kind of impact will that have on both current homeowners and potential home buyers? There is still strong demand. It's just that affordability is now standing firmly in the way, Kelly. And where do we go from here? Well, that's the question. I mean, look, we're going to see prices ease up a bit. We're already starting to see that. The builders are reporting that they're going to try to bring prices down. But it's hard for them to do that, given, as you were just talking about, the inflation and land, labor, materials, all of those costs. But that's what it's going to take to get buyers back into this market. Yeah. As uh, as Jeff was kind of indicating, make someone like him, all right, feel a little more comfortable maybe about doing that project. Diana, thank you for now, our Diana Olick. Still ahead, got to talk oil. We've got crude coming off its worst day since March, snapped a seven-week win streak. 
Is there more downside to come or has the correction now run its course? Plus, half of the stocks in the cloud ETF are down more than 50% this year. Later on, we'll look at the currency headwinds hitting the biggest names and ask whether our trader, our trader whether they can weather the storm. And as we head to break, let's get a look at stocks with a strong 600-point rally on the Dow, a nearly 3% gain for the NASDAQ, and a 2.4% rally for the Russell 2000s. We're back after this. Electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones, from powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY, a big idea that inspired the world to invest differently, and still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the fund's investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. Welcome back to The Exchange. The surge in fuel prices setting off alarm bells at the White House as millions of Americans start hitting the road for holidays and summer vacation. President Biden considering a temporary measure to bring pump prices down. Listen. Considering a pause on the federal gas tax, Mr. President, we know that you're considering it, and Secretary Gellin spoke about it yesterday. Yes, I'm considering it. How soon can we expect a decision? Well, I hope I have a decision based on data I'm looking for by, uh, by the end of the week. By the end of the week, he said there. But how effective would a measure like suspending the gas tax be? It saves, I believe, about 18 cents a gallon. And more importantly, what does it tell us uh, now that oil is trading pretty much in tandem with the market these days? Joining us now is Denton Sinquagrana. He's the chief oil analyst at Opus. It's great to see you again, Denton. Let's just start with the gas tax holiday. What impact would it have? Sure. Well, like you said, it would, it would drop prices 18 cents pretty much immediately. The one thing that I fear is that it kind of artificially stokes demand higher. And I think, honestly, we need a little bit of demand destruction to allow supply to catch up to to kind of normal levels that we need to see for this time of year. And my understanding, uh, and um, our friend Patrick DeHana Gas Buddy has been tweeting about this, but is that gasoline demand in the face of these surging prices has within the past week been at the highest levels yet for 2022. That's it's supposed to rise in the summer, but it's rising in the face of considerable spikes in price. Yeah, and you you know again, gasoline demand is actually not falling off as much as we probably would have thought with five dollar gasoline. But again, you don't want to trust everything you see with your own eyes. But driving around this past weekend, everyone was out, and it looked like the economy was still doing pretty well by May. So, yeah. but again, it's a big country out there. Well, we're below the inflation-adjusted price that we hit in two thousand eight. So. Back then, it was over $4 a gallon, but in today's prices, it would still be about five fifty. In other words, we haven't yet gotten to a similar pressure point as we saw 14 years ago when we then were tipping into a deep recession. And then the financial crisis makes you wonder what would have happened to gasoline demand otherwise. So do you expect demand to start falling? I do. You know, once we get past, you know, kind of the early kind of 
surge of summer travel. You know, you have you have a couple of weeks of June where it kind of calms down. And then you get into Fourth of July. And after Fourth of July, things kind of tend to level off. But again, when it comes to supply and demand, obviously, and prices, you know, kind of all better off for July and, and August because there's a there's still a lot that can happen. Do you think uh, oil and gas are up today because of the growing possibility of a gas tax holiday? Because to your point, it would mean more demand. No, I think actually you mentioned it before that, you know, oil has been moving a lot more closely with the S&P 500 over the last couple of uh, weeks or so. I think it's it's getting a little bit of a bounce based on, on the, the strong move in the stock market. Uh, obviously, today we're up about $1.50 to $2 at the moment. So again, after falling by about 9% last week, it's a it's a pretty small bounce, but it's a, a bounce higher nonetheless to about, you know, 111, 112 for WTI and a few dollars more for Brent. Do you take a lot of signal from the fact that they're trading together these days? Because the obvious conclusion to reach here is that it's more about, you know, it's risk on risk off, growth on growth off, recession on recession off, and that that's now the trade. Yeah. And again, it's 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 working right now. But there's been times in the recent past where we've seen the two really kind of disconnect from one another. Right now, really, the fundamentals don't necessarily support a, a sharp drop in oil prices or gasoline prices either. So right now, I think it's a, it's a movement with the larger larger you know risk assets, like you mentioned. And again, it could disconnect at any time and really kind of pop higher when when the S and P might be falling off a little bit. The global swing factor is still Russia supplies, which are now rippling through the entire energy markets as Europe tries to switch to coal and the gasoline gets some uh, lift from replacement demand. Where is this all going? If we continue the status quo as we start to head into the fall and then winter, how is that additional stress on the markets likely uh, to impact what Americans are paying for? What I notice is a, is a lower natural gas price this morning. Yeah, one of the things that here in the United States, we're blessed with pretty much abundant natural gas. And it's it's cheap natural gas compared, at least compared to Europe, where you're looking at European prices in the $40 per MBTU area. Right now, we're about $7 here in the U.S. at, at the Henry Hub uh, Futures uh, delivery point. So again, blessed with with cheap natural gas here versus, versus Europe, which is really kind of dependent on, uh, obviously, imports from places like Russia and others, but also from the U.S. and with the LNG facility down for, for the first, you know, through really through late this year, mm. uh, that, that creates a, a further problem for Europe. It does. It keeps more of our supply here, uh, less of it there. Uh, still, uh, a lot of people say a structurally bullish market for energy. We'll leave it there for now, Denton. We'll check back in soon. Thanks for your time. Thanks, Kelly. Great to be here. Denton Sinkugurana with Opus. Speaking of oil, CNBC's new documentary, ExxonMobil at the Crossroads, premieres tomorrow night at 8 p.m. Eastern. David Faber got exclusive and unprecedented access inside the oil giant as he explores whether the company is ready for the energy transition. Here's part of his conversation with Exxon CEO Darren Woods and board member Jeff Ubbin on what's changed after their investor activist investor battle. The fact that Exxon is modeling net zero and is comfortable with its role in a zero carbon economy in 2050, that's one year change. That's in one year we've done that. That's fascinating, right? So I think it's roughly a year ago or so. You, you lost that proxy fight. What, if anything, have you changed in terms of whether it's your transparency, whether it's the way you communicate with shareholders as a result of that event? Yeah, I think you've touched on two important ones. For all these things, all these challenges, uh, you know, our job is to learn from those and make sure that we're responding to why did we get the votes against us. So you will see today uh, we've become much more uh, transparent. 
and transparency has been one of the biggest asks from ESG investors. But just as the ESG movement has gone mainstream, are investors jumping ship? Pippa Stevens is here with a look at the changing tide, Pippa. And Kelly, you've been following this closely. Enormous attention on ESG and massive inflows into the space. But in May, we actually saw a reversal with investors pulling money from global ESG and sustainability-focused ETFs. This, of course, comes within the broader market downturn, but it's still notable since it's the first month of outflows in years. And performance for the group has been subpar, in part because many exclude energy stocks, which, of course, is the top performing group for 2022. Just 18% of actively managed sustainable funds are beating their benchmark this year. That's according to RBC. And that's compared to 44% of traditional equity funds beating their benchmarks. Two of the largest funds, the Vanguard ESG ETF and iShares ESG Aware USA Fund, both down sharply this year. Now, John Hale from Sustainalytics saying this all comes down to broader market dynamics, which are driving outflows. But with growing regulatory concerns around ESG and outspoken criticism from the likes of Elon Musk, it does, Kelly, beg the question of, you know, have we seen peak ESG? I mean, what do you think in terms of the regulatory tide? I wonder if it would take a Republican administration um, or leadership of the SEC to start really aggressively pushing back against some of this. Otherwise, it seems like like it's it's continuing to gain adoption and gain steam. Well, Chair Gensler is certainly trying. He said that it's really important for investors to have comparable and consistent information when they're looking at different asset managers. But I think another thing is that just like we can't lump ESG and sustainable funds into one category because there are so many definitions, we also have to differentiate between performance. So there are those funds that are focused on how do ESG metrics impact financial performance and then funds focused on actually trying to do good. Right. And it's that latter category that we've seen funds yank from, you know, in May and this year. And that's because, you know, when the when the economy is potentially going into a downturn, you don't want to sacrifice any type of performance. And so the ones that are thinking about ESG in terms of financial risk reward right. are the ones that are holding up better than the more impact investing category. Very interesting. Pippa, thank you. Pippa Stevens. Coming up, this stock is on pace for a five-month win streak for the first time since 2016. What's the secret to this staple's success? Why is it having its best day in over a year? That's ahead. Plus, European disunion. Can the continent avoid a return of its crushing debt crisis like the one we saw a decade ago? How inflation is boxing in policymakers this time around? And what investors should do about it? And as we head to break, here's the Dow, mostly green, only four names in the red today. UNH, Chevron, and Merck leading the way. Home Depot, Disney, and 3M among your laggards. Only three of them now. We're back in a moment. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. 
Welcome back to The Exchange. The session high a moment ago, 618 uh, points to the upside. We're just below that with a 2% gain on the Dow and a 3% increase for the NASDAQ nearly. Here are some of the movers we are watching, as always these days, the ARK-K Innovation ETF. It's way up, it's way down. Today it's up almost 7% and on pace for its fourth positive day in five. Top holdings like Zoom, Tesla, Roku, and CRISPR Therapeutics all in the green. As we said, Tesla's up 12% today. Still ARK-K down 70% from the all-time highs. Sort of similar vein, DocuSign shares slightly higher after announcing the CEO is stepping down less than two weeks after those really disappointing results. This stock also down 80% from its highs. It's up only 1% today. And Bitcoin bouncing back after falling below $18,000 over the weekend. We're back up to around 21000 actually. Uh, again, a 70% drop from the highs. We also today have the launch of that ProShares uh, Bitcoin short ETF, ticker BITI. It's the first one. It tracks the inverse daily performance of the S&P Bitcoin futures index. And this is up even though Bitcoin is also up today. Tyler, go figure. I love that. B-I-T-I. <laughs> Bitty as in itty. Bitty. All right. Uh, welcome to the news update, everybody. Even as police waited for a key, the door to the classroom in the Uvalde school shooting was not locked. That's the testimony today from the head of the Department of Public Safety in Texas, who says he believes no one ever checked to see if the door was locked or not. That revelation comes as a Texas newspaper published a security camera still showing police just outside that classroom. They had a rifle, a shield, far earlier than originally thought. The House's January 6th committee's latest hearings have just begun, looking at former president's attempt to pressure some state elections officials, local officials as well, after the 2020 vote. The Washington Post reports the Biden administration wants to force tobacco companies to reduce the nicotine in cigarettes to make them less addictive, with plans to announce the start of a lengthy rulemaking process as soon as today. And Cleveland Browns quarterback Deshaun Watson has settled 20 of the 24 lawsuits filed by women accusing him of sexual assault and harassment. This is according to a lawyer for one of those plaintiffs. Kelly? We'll see what happens. Back to you. All right, Tyler, and I'll see you soon. Thank you so much. Still ahead, the dollar has been on a steady march higher this year of nearly 9%. Today, it's hitting its highest level against the yen since 1998. Next, we'll look at one sector and three names most exposed to a strong greenback and how to trade them. Don't go anywhere. Welcome back to The Exchange. A strong dollar may be great if you're doing overseas travel, but it's a big headache for companies whose foreign profits become less valuable. And one sector where a number of companies have already started to warn about currency risks, it may surprise you. It's the cloud and software sector. We've got the story and the trades. Let's begin with Adobe. The shares are down 35% this year. They issued disappointing quarterly and full-year guidance in that last earnings report Friday. It prompted Morgan Stanley to downgrade the shares today, saying, quote, management has elevated the risk profile in the current volatile macro backdrop. CNBC's Frank Holland is here with more of our story and stats today. And Chris Grisanti has our trades. He is MAI Capital's chief equity strategist. Welcome to both of you, Frank. Let's get the scoop on Adobe. Hey there, Cal. You know, Adobe gets 44% of its revenue outside the Americas. Last earnings, it cited a $175 million negative impact from the stronger dollar. Cowan calculating that to be 60 to 70 cents impact to full year EPS, but saying it is partially offset by str stronger margin. I spoke with Adobe CFO last week. He says he's confident demand will remain steady, even with the rising dollar, saying in part, 
Our software is mission critical, referring to companies making the digital transformation and especially for media companies and the companies that are attempting to make that transition into the metaverse. Did you, Frank, say 44% is uh, foreign revenue? That's a big number. That is a big number, 44%. All right. So, Chris, we turn to you. What do you do with the stock here? Well, well, Kelly, thanks. It's nice to be with you again. Uh, I, I think you, you kind of sit on the sidelines here. And the reason is because even though the stock's down a lot, they are economically sensitive. And if the economy slows, as seems to be happening in Europe and eventually here pretty soon. I, I think these companies are going to start missing earnings and they just don't have the multiple, the multiples haven't come down enough to really uh, avoid a really sharp downturn if that should happen. All right. And you say that, you know, if there's going to be a Netflix moment, maybe we haven't had that just yet. Brings us to stock exactly. number two, which is Microsoft. It's down nearly 25 percent this year. Remember, they cut their fourth quarter outlook earlier this month, warning specifically about the stronger dollar. Frank, what's the story here? Well, Kelly, Microsoft gets about 40% of its revenue outside the Americas and almost 40% of its revenue from its cloud business. According to Credit Suisse, demand for cloud should only continue to increase, even in the current environment with recessionary concerns. Analysts saying, in part, the cloud model promotes availability, agility, and speed, offers capital and operating efficiency, end quote. So as you mentioned, on June 2nd, Microsoft warned of the impact of the stronger dollar. At that point, the dollar had risen about 3.5% in Q2. Now it's up about 6% in Q2. It, you know, it's just interesting, Chris, because even, you know, these companies have everything investors want, except for the fact that so much of that revenue is overseas. Why don't they get more benefit of the doubt where you'd say, OK, at least you have cloud or, or you know, at least you have a strong recurring services business. The dollar is just going to fluctuate wherever it's going to fluctuate in the, in the medium to longer run. You know, and I think there's a lot of wisdom in what you're saying, Kelly. And and even the day that Microsoft announced it, it was it was down on the open. But but by the end of the day, it was about about even. And and so I think folks are more afraid of what we just glanced at a minute ago, the Microsoft. I'm sorry, the Netflix moment, where everybody assumes Microsoft would be the perfect example of this, that, that the cloud is just going to keep growing at 50% a year. Let's say it only grows at 30 or 35% because the economy is slowing or the business is maturing. That's a big deal for a company with the multiple that Microsoft has. So I would just say there are other tech companies now because the whole matrix has have moved that, that are just less expensive and might be more attractive because they've already you know, seen the, the disaster that, that's the the Fair. tech market right it, now. It's sort of like there are other problems that this is exacerbating or being emblematic of, uh, as opposed to this being exactly. the only the only thing hitting it. Frank, do you know, do any of these companies try to hedge the dollar? You know, Adobe previously tried to hedge the dollar before its new CFO was in place. It was appointed last year, I believe, in November of last year. That strategy has now been changed. Um, again, I, like I said, he, he believes that their software is mission critical and that, you know, their their demand is going to remain consistent even with a stronger dollar overseas. Yeah, Adobe was like the best stock. I mean, it was funny to see Jeff Ubbin on with David. I mean, it was Jeff and Adobe and that whole software as a service strategy, which really then transformed the whole space. But anyway, times have changed. Uh, our last stock is Hewlett Packard Enterprise. Speaking of times that have changed, the stock is down about 12% this year. They had earnings earlier this month and like Adobe, had disappointing quarterly guidance and lowered their full year outlook, partly on Forex concerns. So in this case, Frank, I'm a little bit less exposure, I guess, but still a hit. Uh, you know, actually, Kelly, quite a bit of exposure. Uh, Hewlett Packard Enterprises gets 62 percent of oh, its wow. revenue outside the Americas. Last quarter at lower guidance from a previous raise, citing unfavorable currency movements. Deutsche Bank downgrading HPE just about a week ago, saying in part HPE saw four consecutive quarters of 20 percent plus year over year order growth 
We expect order growth to start decelerating or even turning negative as IT spending starts to slow down. 62%. Okay, Chris, that is a very high. That must be one of the <laughs> highest in the entire S&P 500. Yeah, you know, HPE is like the job of the tech uh, the tech market. They have everything going wrong for them right now. So obviously, you got all this overseas business. They have Russia issues. They have China lockdown issues. They have supply chain issues. And for that reason, the earnings report from a couple of weeks ago was basically a basket of different misses of one kind or another. Now, that the valuation, unlike Adobe and Microsoft, reflects that. It's, only, it's selling at less than 10 times earnings. Having said that, if the economy is slowing, I really don't want to own no growth Hewlett Packers Enterprises. I, I just think that's while you may not lose a lot of money as it's bouncing along the bottom, it just doesn't seem to be as bright a future there. So once again, I'm sorry to, to do this to your viewers, Kelly, but I'm on the sidelines for all three of these. Well, guys. but if we follow the analogy, are investors going to get everything returned back to them and then some if they stick it out with HPE here? Well, you know, I don't think so, only because I think the long-term growth prospects, unlike Adobe and Microsoft, are just not that great at HP. I think that's a, it's a value trap. Uh, by the way, Frank, these are three perhaps most emblematic, but would you say that this is the pressure we're seeing across cloud and software stems in part because they are one of the biggest and most exposed to these dollar uh, headwinds? And by the way, if this is a turning point for the dollar now, maybe that's a reason to own them all for a, a trade, but that's sure. a tough call to make. Yeah, I mean, Kelly, there's a lot of exposure here. There's the dollar impact. There's the rising rates impact. So two different areas. And you also have to remember that overseas, outside the U.S., that's the real growth markets for all these different companies in both cloud and enterprise. The U.S. is generally a first mover and an early adopter of cloud, uh, moving from workloads from legacy on-premise to the cloud, adopting these different enterprises. So really what they're looking for is more growth in areas like APAC and also uh, Europe and the Middle East. So when you have a stronger dollar, that really hurts the potential of that growth. All right. Chris Crisanti, before we let you go, because it's good to have you here today, strong market rebound, really tough uh, week we're coming out of, tough couple, I mean, 10, 11, 12-week stretch at this point. Uh, any any advice for investors more broadly here? Yeah, I, I mean, I guess I'm not surprised we're having a, a, a strong day after such a horrible three weeks. I, I wouldn't put too much credence into it. We haven't seen the indicia I'd like to see for a real bottom. And, and so once again, you know, I love to own stocks for the long term, but I think you can still take your time and pick cautiously here. Kelly. And you didn't you were on the sidelines for the cloud and software names we mentioned. Where would you be most favorable right now? Well, you know, um, I, I, you're you're going to laugh at me, but boy, the home builders are cheap. Ah, no, I, I don't laugh at all. I think that's very oh, intriguing. No, no, no. You got mortgage rates. At, if mortgage rates are peaking, as I suspect they are, um, the the and home building will soften, but it's not going to fall off a cliff. Then you've got home builders at less than four times earnings. The earnings will come in a little, but not a lot. The stocks are off, off almost fifty percent from their eyes, you know, and they're all making a ton of money. This is not two thousand and eight, and those look really interesting to me. I just look. I go if the earnings collapse by seventy five percent at this point, what does the multiple go to? 12, you know, 14. Right, exactly. I mean, and, and I don't think you're in for 75% earnings drop at all. Right, the exactly. Lennar number today was pretty good. So. Yeah, no, I think that's very interesting. We'll bring you back. Uh, definitely talk more about that, Chris. For now, thank you, Chris Grisanti and Frank Holland, our appreciation as well. All right, next, we're going to talk some staples. They have been a relative outperformer as inflation climbs and recession fears loom. They're only down 6% in the past three months compared to 23% for discretionary and 16% for the broader market. We'll hear from the CEO of One Household Name next about how the company is planning to expand. Stay tuned on The Exchange.
Welcome back, everybody. Time for some show and tell, where we show you the chart and tell the story. And today, it's Kellogg. That was the mystery chart we showed you earlier. Shares are higher by about 2.5%. That's not much of a gain, actually. Anyway, the company announced plans to split itself into three separate units, spinning off snacking, cereal, and plant-based businesses. CEO Steve Kahalane told Squawk Box there's plenty of room to grow in the red-hot snacking space. It's over an $11 billion business that will be uh, the global snacking company. As you said, great gems. And if you think about Pringles, it's a worldwide brand, an iconic brand. But think about brands like Cheez-It, Pop-Tarts, Rice Krispies Treats. They're principally domestic brands. But as we've you know, tinkered with putting them in international markets, they've done extremely well. So the international expansion opportunities are, are absolutely great. The ability to focus on just those brands and just in the snack, mostly the snacking space uh, is a tremendous opportunity. And our developing markets uh, become bigger as a proportion of our sales. So it's a very growthy company. Rice Krispies everywhere. Coming up, Europe's fear gauge. The gap between the yields on German and Italian bonds have widened to levels not seen in more than two years. We'll discuss this growing divide and how central bankers can deal with it when inflation is also so high. The options they face and the opportunities for investors next. Welcome back to The Exchange. If things are starting to feel pretty bad here at home, you might feel a little better taking a look across the pond. The EU is currently facing a number of pressures that are creating a big wall of worry. There's the Ukraine war, obviously. It has energy prices surging. Eurozone inflation is running hot, up more than 8%. Producer prices up more than 30% in some countries. And Europe's fear gauge, the spread between German and Italian bonds, it's been widening, with Italian yields hitting their highest level since Europe's sovereign debt crisis and leading to an emergency ECB meeting just last week. Joining us now, Fred Kemp is CEO of the Atlantic Council and Peter Bookvar is chief investment officer of Bleakley Advisory Group. Both are CNBC contributors. Welcome, guys. Fred, I thought it was interesting that you said the, the ECB's emergency or ad hoc meeting last week um, was really just about helping Italy. Why that country in particular? Yeah, of, of course, some people thought it was about uh, increasing rates, but that had already been cooked. And it was about helping Italy because you're in a situation where the credit spread has become so great. And at times of uh, economic strength in Europe, uh, the credit worthiness of differing European Union's own members gets papered over. At times of economic stress, uh, the, the differences really reveal themselves. And you're seeing it reveal themselves, not just Italy, also Spain. Uh, and you're in a situation where the ECB has to make a decision whether to start helping Italy the way it did Greek, Greece a little while ago. But the Germans at that emergency meeting were not very much in favor of some of the market solutions, buying up Italian bonds, using Eurozone money to support the bond market in order to, to uh, uh, close this gap. And Peter, are we going to be in the situation? So the thing that's, you know, we're coming up on the 10-year anniversary of Draghi's whatever-it-takes comments, one of the most lauded, most significant central bank moments of the millennium so far. And he was able to pull that off at the time because there was very low inflation, and it was hard enough back then as it was. Now we have very high inflation. How does that box policymakers in if you think it does? Extraordinarily difficult. So as you mentioned, 2012 was when he made that comment. That was in response to the 2011 and into 2012 spike in rates in those peripheral countries where the Italian 10-year spread relative to the German 10-year bund yield got over 500 basis points. Uh, 
So they went from an institution that was supposed to focus on price stability, then it shifted to lowering the, the, the bond yields on these peripheral countries, to then shifting back to wanting to generate inflation, and here we are trying to now contain out-of-control inflation, at the same time trying to keep Italian yields from rising further. I'm not sure how they thread this needle uh, at all, but it does show you that the real number one priority of the ECB is first containing and financing the debts and deficits of these Eurozone countries. Yeah. And price stability is number two. I, I totally agree. And yet that's why I thought it was so interesting that Goldman last night put out an analysis where they said they think of all the central banks, the ECB is least likely to stop hiking because it's the one that seems most focused on these inflationary pressures that they have. There's no let up in the energy price situation, Peter. So what's that going to mean? Right. And we're talking about an institution that is still doing QE for another week. And even after a July rate hike is still going to have rates below zero. So I don't know how they're going to thread this. Uh, 2% is their give or take inflation target as well. Uh, I don't see how they get there without causing uh, a further blowout in interest rates in, in all countries. I mean, Italy in particular, pre-COVID, their debt to GDP ratio was about 130%. Now it's 150%. Hmm. So that's why they are uber sensitive to their yields blowing out relative to Germany. One of the biggest bond markets in the world, Fred, that's been true for a very long time. A lot of outstanding debt. So a big, big issue of importance. So if we're... <laughs> Fred, in a situation where, as some are joking slash speculating, the European Central Bank could be raising rates aggressively and also doing quantitative easing, but maybe trying not to call it that or saying it's monetary policy, maybe it's just, you know, um, somehow sterilized to try to remove the liquidity effects. What other options do they have here? Well, look, you're pacing. That's what they have. Those are the options they have. Uh, you, you, you face this uh, devil's compromise. Uh, do you uh, distort the market, which you're going to have to do, or do you let Italy fail, which you cannot do? So you try to get something Goldilocks in between. But in the meantime, this isn't just right now about a monetary financial situation. You have to preserve European unity in facing uh, against uh Putin uh, in the war in Ukraine. The good side is you had the leaders of Italy, including Mario Draghi, by the way, the man of 2012 is now the uh, prime minister of Italy, with uh, the uh, chancellor of Germany and with the president of France. So Macron, Schultz and Draghi are there with their, their Romanian colleague. And you really wonder what Draghi and Schultz were saying in the train back, because <laughs> This is really, in the end, a political solution. It's certainly a ECB solution, but everyone wants to Ukraine to win. But people have different views of what that means. If you're in Central and Eastern Europe, Putin's got to lose. He's got to fail. If you're Macron, you want to give Putin an off-ramp, while others in Europe want to give him a dead end. And this kind of disunity in the financial markets and caused by these kinds of stresses of 50% growth in energy prices and gas prices just in the last week, six times higher right. than they were before the pandemic. And it comes together, geopolitical and geoeconomic stress together in a way that Europe hasn't seen it for many, many years. You know, it's, it's sort of frightening. I mean, did they ever solve, uh, Fred, the structural problems that were revealed with the debt crisis last time around, where basically there's this kind of devil's compromise at the heart of it that the uh, stronger members support the weaker ones, but without any further federal integration like the U.S. has? 
Uh, they haven't solved the issue. And every few years, we're going to face a situation like this where it shows they haven't solved the issue. Uh, and uh, can you go from, uh, you know, have a fiscal union, economic union, a political union. Uh, this number of U European states just can't come together on all of this. And this is one of these testing moments uh, where European stress has not been this great, I don't think, since the Cold War. Uh, and how it manages is its times, Europe is, is defined by how it handles its division. Was so during the Cold War, is so now. And so the divisions over Ukraine and the divisions right now over the financial situation, you have to be seen together. If they can handle it, Europe yeah. comes out of this much, much stronger. If, they, if one can't handle it, Europe becomes another problem for the world as it has been in history. With that binary outcome, Peter, real quickly, where do you think investors are laying their bets right now? Well, we, the, the, the one area that we like the most in Europe are the, the commodity companies, particularly the integrated large uh, oil companies like uh, Total Energies and Shell. Because of the European problems, they trade at a substantial discount to their, their U.S. brethren uh, on the energy space. So yeah. we both have the commodity tailwind and possibly some valuation catch-up. All right, so a couple of ideas there in what's going to be a very challenging time. Peter Bookvar, Fred Kemp, thank you both. We Thanks, appreciate Kelly. it. Still ahead, crypto chaos. Another $100 billion gone from the industry as it continues to shrink, but by some measures, the damage may be even worse. The latest data next. Welcome back. One more thing before we go today. Bitcoin is climbing back somewhat today, but it's down 30 percent this month, wiping out hundreds of billions of dollars from the crypto market. Kate Rooney is here to dig into the crypto chaos numbers. Kate. Hey, Kelly, that's right. As crypto was going up, investors were looking to get an edge during that boom and created complicated, largely unregulated financial products to capture yields. But as prices collapsed, that murky lending model is now unraveling. We've seen hedge funds like Three Arrows failing to beat margin calls, other crypto companies freezing customer funds, and investors that I've been talking to in part blame competition and the number of projects popping up promising 18 to 20 percent yield. The amount of interest-bearing crypto products uh, projects, Kelly, has roughly tripled in the past couple of years. This chart here is from Chainalysis. Those higher yields are a way to get investors in the door, but they do tend to be riskier, the other big issue, very little disclosure on the back end. That makes the collateral hard to track. And many right now are worried about counterparty risk and solvency. One person I spoke to over the weekend compared it to the subprime mortgage crisis. Analysts over at Glassnode are calling this a mini financial crisis. One way to assess the damage, total locked value or total value locked, TVL as they call it, which attempts to track deposits in this decentralized finance ecosystem. Glassnode estimates that market has lost $124 billion in just the past six weeks. Glassnode analysts also point to a flight to some of the U.S.-based cryptocurrencies. The supply of USDC, a so-called stablecoin that's pegged to the price of the dollar, has grown by roughly $5 billion since the start of May. Tether, meanwhile, that's based overseas, has seen the opposite effect with about $13 billion of redemptions. Kelly, back to you. Uh, that does definitely give us some great insight into how the money's moving around or disappearing altogether. <laughs> Kate, thank you very much, Kate Rooney. That does it for us, everybody. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. 
That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. 